Hi, this is Roy's Rocket Radio, episode 177, recorded on Tuesday the 16th of May 2017 at 5 minutes and 27 seconds past 10 in the evening. And yes, as you have correctly guessed, this is not Sunday. Sorry about that, it has been a punishing week, mostly of my own making, but I'll tell you more later on. I have been suffering from allergies, but as this really isn't a health show, or it's at least not a platform for me to moan about my health, we'll leave that for now. As usual, and I keep harping on about this, and I can't promise that I won't stop because it is important to engage the audience. And I know there's a lot of demand for your time, but I know you listen because you tell me, usually in person. But what I could really do with are iTunes reviews. I cannot emphasize enough, and I usually say this every week, how important these are in helping Roy's Rocket Radio. So if you can do that for me, please do. Next news about the show, continued PayPal donations. Now, I mentioned ages ago that these are apparently taxable, but it is a grey area. And it is dependent on your total income threshold. So, I'm setting up a PayPal link, and anything you can throw my way would be appreciated. And if you can't, doesn't matter, but... If you do want to help, tell a friend about the show and consider that iTunes review. Now, this week is rather special because we're getting back to our Doctor Who marathon with the spearhead from space from 1970. But before we do the fun bit, let's do some moany techie bits that I said that I'd do in my Twitter feed. Now, I have mentioned this before. Techno Bilge, it's back. Techno Bilge, my own spin on a dropped Guardian column that I totally did not manage to take over, though the editor at the time made positive noises. But editors, eh? Don't they always do that? Maybe this should be in the creative section about dealing with the not-so-great stuff about being a creative, but I'm no Zen master or Jedi, as I've been told many, many times. So sorry, no wisdom on that front for my fellow creatives, except to keep going. But, man, do I have a lot to moan about. So let's start with what I'm calling, and was a large part of why I had almost no extra time last week. And I'm calling this the faff of BBC iPlayer, Freesat, Umanx, PC World, and John Lewis. Yep, I'm having a go at everyone this week. So let's start with what happened. I have a fairly cheap budget Manhattan HD Freesat box at home. And I decided to change to a more modern, in fact very, very new, Umanx HB 1100S. Now, why did I decide to change something when nothing's broken? 
Well, actually, the remote control's pretty bashed up, but mainly, BBC iPlayer no longer supports some free sat boxes, including that Manhattan HD box that I have. And just as an aside, if you don't know what FreeSat is, FreeSat is a TV service that uses the Astra satellite, which is the same one that Sky uses, and the Utelsat satellites to bring you free programming and an interactive programmable on-screen guide. Now, if I've got any of that wrong, please let me know. So iPlayer would not be supported on my old FreeSat box. Now, why does that really matter? Well, it's annoying because last Wednesday I was adding an old Wi-Fi router that a friend had given me to my old and now obsolete Manhattan FreeSat box to get on-demand TV, rather than using a network cable as I am too far from the BT hub. You wouldn't believe the aggro I had to go through to set this up. And then, luckily, as I was trying to sort out that router, I did a quick online Google and found that my box wouldn't have been supported anyway, so the whole fiasco with the router was pointless. The only thing I could do if I wanted the full set of on-demand TV channels, iPlayer, My5, ITV Hub, four on demand, or all four, whatever it's called, would be to get a new satellite box. I did find one, and it was that aforementioned Umanx HB1100S. And I found one locally by checking the stock levels at PC World. But what I found when I drove down to PC World is that the database bears no actual relation to what's actually in the shop or what the shop assistants can find in PC World. When I finally found a shop that had the new Umanx box, and that was John Lewis, the stock database let us down yet again, and the assistant had to go to some back room to look for the box to see if any was in stock. And while I was impatiently bumbling around the department, I found that those boxes were actually hidden in plain sight on the shop floor just around the corner. So, pretty aggravating right from the beginning. Anyway, at least I bought the box. I went home, unplugged the working Manhattan box, plugged in the Umanx box, and presto! Searching for a satellite signal, searching for a satellite signal, etc, 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 ad infinitum. How unbelievably annoying! Because the old box was working, so what could possibly be wrong with the satellite signal? But dutifully, I went out, and this is cue me getting out my ladder, which was too short, so that wasn't much good. Then I went to get my binoculars and stood across the street like a lunatic trying to work out whether the satellite dish was out of alignment. But of course it wasn't because it had already been working five minutes earlier. But I checked anyway and nothing seemed to be wrong. I turned the box on and off again, of course, 
as we do as techie people. Then I phoned Freesat after flicking through the manual, which had nothing in it, which is always the last resort. But then I did phone Freesat themselves because there was their number in the box. And after a really short, polite conversation, I was passed on immediately to Umanx because Freesat just didn't want to deal with this. Another very polite conversation with the Umanx people and either they've got lots of operators which is good or I was just phoning at a time when they weren't too busy because I got through to both Freesat and Umanx pretty quickly. The advisor at Umanx also very, very quickly gave up and gave me a return authorization number. But being a geek, I wasn't going to leave it there. So I had another go at the box. And after really, really, really tightening the cable hard into the box, literally the only thing that I didn't do is hit it with a mallet. Bingo! I actually started having a satellite connection which suggests that the connection to the satellite cable pin socket must be really, really deep inside that box. Maybe there's a problem with moulding or something. So for all those other people having the same problem, first try that. Though it may feel like you're about to break the box. I even managed to get Wi-Fi working, which is great. I wouldn't need a cable to get on-demand TV, and celebrated by re-watching Doctor Who Series 10 pilot again. Now, let's for a moment talk about the box itself. Umanx describe it in glowing terms of how sleek and well-designed it is, but it is a light, shiny, black smudge magnet of a box and does not look like something you would pay £100 for. It looks like something you'd pay about £20 for. So I have to ask, what design genius came up with this? Not Johnny Ives, I'm thinking. And it gets pretty warm on top, which is great because some genius added cooling vents to the side. I might, had it been a test unit and it was my job to work out what was going on, cracked the sucker open and had a look inside, maybe use a thermal probe. I do think that the heat issue isn't great and I've seen the same problems with other routers and cable modems. So come on manufacturers, not just UMANC, stop penny pinching and add heat sinks and fans and perhaps put the vents in the right place. The remote for the unit is big and chunky and works most of the time, except for when it unpredictably does not. Sometimes the function buttons swap over. <laughs> Sometimes there is no infrared signal at all. Now, we've had a moan about the design of the box about getting it to work. Let's talk about the FreeSat app. Yes, there is a smartphone app for FreeSat. The idea is that it will take over for your remote and give you a bit of extra functionality too. 
and it sort of works, but not terribly reliably. Which is a pity, because offloading all the remote and guide functionality to an app would have been the killer feature if they could get it all to work. But it's as glitchy as everything else. One particular annoyance is that while it can set reminders, it can't. And I have to pause now because I can't quite believe this myself. Actually schedule a program. Yes, you can't schedule a program from the app. Fantastic. Also, you need to use a phone-like number pad to search for shows. But unlike phones that have been around since the 80s, there is no alphabet on the keys. But wait, this is an app. Why not just use QWERTY? I tell you, they spend millions on FreeSat, then what, £10 on the app? Then how about the other controls, like pause? Oh no, get this. You find the program you want to watch, then have to go back to the remote control to do anything else. It is total, total pants. I cannot emphasize enough how bad the FreeSat app is. I can't believe someone actually developed this, or that it passed UX testing. Actually, I can't even believe that it got tested in any way whatsoever. It's not just pants, it's double pants. You know what this mess reminds me of? Inbuilt car navigation, or in-car entertainment, ICE, or car smartphone integration. There is a reason we all use our phones with Waze rather than some crud built into Mercs. Basically, I think there just isn't the skill set in FreeSat, or any of the satellite companies for that matter, to work out how to do this. But FreeSat is, and I bet you not many people knew this, 50% owned by the BBC. And we do know that the BBC managed to get iPlayer right. Draconian licensing notwithstanding, iPlayer works. The other 50% is owned by ITV. So I'll give them a pass because, and this is another believe it or not moment, their own on-demand TV app doesn't actually work with the new box. So, given that ITV's competence to do anything is questionable, I'm not going to blame them for the state of FreeSat. Did I mention the passwords for every separate on-demand app? Again, aggravating, but Apple, and that's only in Mac OS, also has that problem of endlessly entering passwords. So again, give them another pass. Then there's the endless clicking on the remote to type things that I mentioned before. It is an app. It is a piece of software. How hard would it have been to program a QWERTY keyboard into the app? Look, I could moan forever, but FreeSat or Umanx aren't paying me, which reminds me about something I'll come back to later. So one last gripe. On demand, and FreeSat integration is non-existent. Which should come as no surprise after my moaning for the last, well, 10 minutes or so. 
Let me give you an example. When you are watching something in On Demand, say Doctor Who on iPlayer, which I did, and you want to quickly flick over to a preset channel and then come back, guess what? You can't, or at least I can't figure out how. I actually had to navigate back through the whole sodding menu system to get back to watching Doctor Who. At least when I got there, I could resume where I'd left off. Well, sometimes I could, sometimes I couldn't. And sometimes the screen, for no discernible reason, would just go crazy. If I remember, I'll put a shot of my TV into the blog post for this podcast. I must say, the whole experience felt like a bodge, and I can't imagine any normal muggle persisting as long as I did. Everything's flaky, unreliable, unpredictable, and both frees at the service and the hardware, in the shape of the Umanx hardware that I was using, need more work. After days of forum searching, factory resets, and despite high Wi-Fi signal strength, eventually the box simply refused to connect to any on-demand TV service, which was a primary reason for me replacing my old box in the first place. So, inevitably, I gave up and returned the blasted thing earlier today, resigning myself to the old box and just watching on-demand TV on my PC or my smartphone. If my current home did not already have a sky dish, in fact, that's what I would do. I'd ditch the lot and get all my content online through a TV or monitor connected to a living room PC. Not even a media center, just a bog standard browser and VLC for everything else. All in all, a thoroughly annoying experience and a complete waste of time. One thing I'd like to add to that, I have a contact in retail who has told me that a lot of these boxes are being returned and some of the problems I mentioned are being reported by other buyers. If you have bought a Umanx 1100 S and are having similar problems, let me know. If I have enough interest, maybe I'll even contact FreeSat and ask them for a statement. And Umanx too. And the next thing on my moan list, Firefox again. Firefox, even with the latest update, is still, and I told them this month ago, probably years ago, and I consistently tell them Mozilla that is, is still unable to render pages with some fairly large and widely used third-party widgets, including Twitter feeds. And it's really inexplicable because more basic browsers like SeaMonkey have absolutely no problem with in-page widgets. It is Incredibly frustrating. I don't know if that's also the case for Chrome, and if it is, let me know. Bug reports. Another thing 
that is really getting on my nerves lately. When you are told to formally file a bug report, my immediate reaction is to say, silently in my mind, of course, while making polite noises, I've already told you, so why don't you file it? Look, I'm not going to name names, like I did quite fairly with the aforesaid huge corporations and squash the little guy, because I am the little guy. But no, I've told devs before, either on Twitter or by email. So to be told to report a bug using their own bureaucracy when I've already told them, no, I'm not going to do it and I don't care if it is free or open source software, I'm still a customer. If you want to know more, ask me and raise a support ticket yourself. So that's what I think about GitHub bug reports. And I just hope that that really gets through the skulls of devs. Finally, and on the subject of not being paid to <laughs> debug or at least make a detailed report on that Umanx box, because I think I've said enough now, that Umanx box that I was talking about, the Umanx 1100S. What I wanted to point out was that many tech sites give the device four to five star ratings. After my own experiences, all I can think of is that the testers were either in just absolutely perfect testing conditions or that they were all on acid because the articles I read now, in retrospect, seem more like advertorials than journalism. And I have found this to be the case for many consumer items, some of which, like many others, I have bought on the strength of an online review which ultimately led me up the garden path. Remember the Moto E? I do remember buying that and being satisfied with its functionality for at least a week until things started to go pear shape. And then there were all the trips back to the repair shop and the well-known bug that the speakers just intermittently decide not to work. Then there was the case of the iRig Pre for Android, which I haven't really talked about on this podcast because there's only so much time and I can't fill it completely with moaning, which is noisy and has terrible lag while monitoring. And then there's the Moto G 3rd Gen, my current phone, which is okay, but apparently does not have a full sensor suite. And I only know that because I ran a sensor test and it said a couple of sensors were missing. Now, these are but a few examples. They are the tip of the iceberg, and it does make me highly suspicious of many of the articles that I have read in quite well-respected publications where they've talked about consumer electronics and, for some mysterious reasons, have never found any bugs with any of the things they have talked about, and they've never done a follow-up on many of their devices. Listen, this is aimed at manufacturers. If you want a true, real-world test of your gadget, then get in touch. 
I'll give it the full treatment. The same goes for app usability. You won't find a harsher red pen anywhere. And it's a family trade. Once my dad told a tree off. Yes, he tried to organize nature. But that's another story. So if you don't want your product or app to fall flat on its face, hire me to do that one last usability test and save yourself a marketplace drubbing. Oh, that was good to get that off my chest today. Let's move on to something less unpleasant before we get on to the main subject of today's show, which is, of course, Doctor Who. Got a bit to talk about in the creative section first, so hang in there. I'm currently undergoing a writing frenzy. So much for a realistic schedule that I keep harping on about. I, in fact, have gone berserk and have written thousands of words over the last few days, but then I am making up for lost time. I have been hammering my laptop keyboard to catch up, but not consistently. Which was another point I made before. Because, as cliché as it seems, especially for writers, it is the tortoise, not the hare, that wins the race. Thank you very much, Aesop. Next, on the subject of frenzies, getting work frenzy. I've been going a little social media mad on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, trying to make connections and getting media work. And I am going to report that I'm having very little response, which is really nothing new to tell my fellow creatives, but you'll be the first to know if something wonderful happens. And if you've been having a hard time yourself lately and something does go right, you find an agent, you find a job, let me know. I'm interested to hear about these things, and then I can vicariously vampire some of your success. I've just used a noun as a verb, sorry. And okay, let the seesaw swing back down to one last bit of negativity before Doctor Who. Podcasting. Is podcasting worth it? I've been thinking a lot about this lately, because although my listener figures have shot up, I reported on Twitter... Actually, I made a slight error on Twitter. I said my May figures are in the 3,000s. I actually meant my April figures were in the 3,000s, which is pretty good. Yes, my listenership is going up. When I first started the podcast, I was lucky to get one downloader. Then I started getting a couple of hundreds a month. Then I really thought I was successful when I was getting over a thousand a month. But over the last few months, it has shot up to over three and a half thousand listeners a month. And I am very appreciative. But I still tend to have doubts about podcasting because it's a lot of effort. And you do tend to wonder, is it worth it? The generic you, that is. Me, I'm talking about. Honestly, I really don't know. I suspect if you're hoping to turn this into a business, it probably 
isn't worth it. Not with the figures that I have now. I also believe that you need about 30% great content and 70% great marketing. I used to think that it was mainly the content that was important, but I think the marketing is pretty important too. My content, let's turn the microscope back on me, is okay. I don't think it's exceptional, but it is okay. Although I only have my own self-reflective criticism to go on because I don't get that many reviews, which is another bugbear that we'll come back to constantly. But my marketing is pants. And it's probably skewed that way because I'm a content writer, not an advertising exec. But will that stop me? No. And should I stop? No, because it's better than not being out there at all. And I really do love talking about the stuff that I talk about. That might not always come across, but it's true. Otherwise, why bother after almost five years? Five years! Do I ever come near quitting? Of course I do, all the time. And I go through these moments of doubt because it is so time-consuming. But at least I can comfort myself by saying that it is not as labour-intensive as YouTubing. The point is, I don't think I will quit. What have I learned while I've been podcasting? Uh, no idea. Not really, because, again, I don't get enough feedback. But that's not really good enough. There must be something I've learned. Ah, yes, I can share this with you. And this is really surprising. Interviews don't generate any more listeners than a normal episode. So all the effort that I put into to getting interesting guests on my podcast generates absolutely no extra listeners. That's surprising and annoying, and it might change the way that I do these podcasts. I don't know yet. But I am serious about the medium of podcasting, and if you want to see the evidence, just look at my show notes. Particularly tonight's show notes. They are long. And that is it for the stuff that isn't Doctor Who. And you'll be pleased to know that the stuff that is Doctor Who begins now. The Doctor Who Marathon is back. I have finished with Patrick Troughton, and we are now starting with Doctor Who and Spearhead from Space from 1970, and finally we get to John Pertwee's Doctor. Let's just do a brief summary, not in agonising detail, but just a concise summary 
of what actually happens during this adventure. The first thing that happens is the TARDIS lands and the Doctor falls out flat on his face. At the same time, some suspicious-looking meteorites land in formation, which is unusual for meteorites, and alerts unit, the United Nations Intelligence Task Force, and our old friend Brigadier Lethbridge Stewart becomes involved. The Doctor is retrieved by unit, and when awake, recognises the Brigadier, However, the Brigadier does not recognise him immediately because of the regeneration. Nearby, a plastics factory that specialises in making dummies and dolls, yes, you really couldn't get more creepy than that, is up to something. And that something turns out to be replacing key government figures with plastic replicas. They are also manufacturing more utilitarian warrior droids and also shop window mannequins, all to be used to conquer the Earth when the balloon goes up. Later we find out that the aliens are being controlled from a thing growing in a tank. Yeah, more horror tropes. Eventually, there's a big battle between Unit and the invaders, and the Doctor makes the tentacled thing pop into goo with his electrical, whining, thingamy doodah. There's a very funny struggle as this happens, and it made me giggle, I'm giggling just with a memory, uncontrollably, as the Doctor struggles with the tentacled thing. And this thing's got its tentacles wrapped around his face, his mouth, all over the place. It is absolutely ludicrous, and I can't imagine how they filmed that with a straight face. Of course, the tentacled thing and the invaders are defeated, but the Doctor is forced to stay on Earth until he can fix his TARDIS, which has been balked by the Time Lords to keep the errant son of Gallifrey. And so, until he can fix the TARDIS, the Doctor agrees to stay on Earth and help Unit in return for a few things. And one of those few things includes finding him a really nice car. He is just so, so, so cool. What did I think? First, the film is gorgeous. Apparently, the BBC were beset by industrial action at the time, and with no access to the studio, with a bit of coaxing, it was agreed that the adventure should be captured in 16mm real colour film instead of the usual boring black and white video. And man, does it show. It looks incredibly sparkly and new and arguably nicer looking than even New Who. It reminds me of when I started favouring Fujichrome Velvia film for photography because it really punches you in the face with colour. More so, perhaps psychosomatically, 
Two, because this was the first time Doctor Who was filmed in colour. After watching the marathon in black and white low definition for so long, this feels like a breath of fresh air for me and I think I'm going to enjoy the ride. According to my mum, I liked John Pertwee as a kid, but nowadays I'm definitely more of a Tom Baker fan. Seeing Pertwee again, however, reminds me why I liked him. He's just so cool. Did I already say that? I'm pretty sure I did, but I'll say it again. He is cool. Cool, cool, cool. He's the right balance between kid-friendly and super-sophisticated action man. There's even a good deal of Moorcock's dandy cosmic adventurer Jerry Cornelius here. Actually, I hadn't even started watching Doctor Who in 1970 because I was still too young, but more importantly, we were still years away from even owning a black and white television. So again, though I have seen the repeats, there are stories that I have missed in their entirety. So don't think I'm getting jaded doing this marathon, because some of this is new to me. The fact that I really enjoyed this adventure bodes well. That is it for the return of the Doctor Who Vintage Viewing Marathon. And today we talked about the spearhead from space from 1970. We will get on with the next adventure pretty soon. But this week we are going to continue with a little bit of pop culture chat and then we're done. The other bit of Doctor Who that I've been watching, of course, is the latest series, Series 10. And the last episode was Oxygen on Saturday. This felt like zombies on a spaceship. Well, they did dinosaurs on a spaceship. So, however, it is good. It is scary. And I think it is the best adventure since Pilot, which was the first episode of the current series. It has a couple of proper shocks. And it has a really horrible, gut-wrenching cliffhanger. You can definitely tell that this is ramping up to Capaldi leaving, and we'll have more on that in the next show. The other pop culture thing that I did since last we spoke is I watched Judge Dredd Cursed Edge, from 2013 and continuing, it seems to be one webisode a year, this is a fan-made web series on YouTube. And in the series, Amsterdam in Holland, I think, is doubling as Mega City 1, which is a bit of a stretch, and I would say kindly you need a touch more CGI to hide the bridges and the bicycles to make it look a bit less like Amsterdam and a lot more like Mega City 1. But nice attempt. The story's okay, but many of the actors seemed 
to lack confidence and could have done with more rehearsal time. If you want to watch it yourself, I'll just repeat the name of that. That is Judge Dredd, Cursed Edge. Just Google that and you will find the entire series on YouTube. And that looks to be just about it for today. I want to finish by saying, or probably repeating a lot of stuff that I said at the top of the podcast, tell a friend or an enemy about Roy's Rocket Radio. You see, the way this works is, if your friend likes it, they'll be happy. And you'll have done them a favour. If your enemy hates it, they'll be sad. So, you see, you can't lose if you recommend my show. Feedback. Again, I reiterate, I said a lot of stuff that's bound to raise a few eyebrows if you're listening. So, get in touch and let me know what you think. And whether you vehemently disagreed or agreed with what I said, or just get in touch to say hello. That's always nice. You can contact me via the blog, roymartha.wordpress.com, that is R-O-Y-M-A-T-H-U-R.wordpress.com. You can also find me on Twitter, at roymartha, at R-O-Y-M-A-T-H-U-R. I don't know why I keep spelling that out. I'm sure you all know how to spell my name by now. There is also a hashtag for the show, hashtag Roy's Rocket Radio. Yeah, that's a stretch. Please review in iTunes. I live and breathe on reviews and I'm not getting any. So go to the iTunes page for this show and leave a review. If you are considering hiring me, yes, paying me money to do something, go to RoyMartha.com. That is just RoyMartha.com and see all the writerly and media-type things that I can do for you. And that's it. This was Roy's Rocket Radio, episode 177, recorded on Tuesday the 16th of May 2017, and the time at the end of the show is 2 minutes and 14 seconds past 11 at night. Thanks for listening, and bye for now. Bye!